It was a big, scary thing, putting that tour together. I was scared. With the release of Pink Floyd The Later Years, a massive new box set from one of the greatest bands the world has ever seen, comes your chance to hear the real story of this legendary time in a whole new light. I'm David Gilmour, and welcome to The Lost Art of Conversation. Pink Floyd podcast. Throughout this series, we'll delve into four key elements of Pink Floyd's creative output from 1987 to today. We rented a hangar on Toronto Airfield for production rehearsals. The Lost Art of Conversation, a Pink Floyd podcast. Where do we do this gig in Venice? Out on the water, of course, facing St. Mark's Square. What do we play on? Well, there's um, a floating barge platform in Norway, and we can tow it from Norway to Venice. This is episode two, the live performances. Hello again. Hello again. In terms of the momentary lapse of reason tour, which is where we're going to start with, a myth, one of many Floyd myths, the myth is that the initial start of that tour, your first kind of comeback tour, was funded by you guys. Did you put your hands in your pockets? Or is that just a slightly romantic... I, I don't even... And I'm being honest here. Yeah. I don't even remember <laughs> whether we would have did. I, we certainly would have done. We certainly would have funded it. I mean, before the album was finished, and before we'd considered the rehearsals or the tour, we had put some shows on sale. So Before you'd even completed the record? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in April or May, we put the first dates on. The album wasn't finished probably till July. And then rehearsals through August and on tour in September. It all happened pretty fast, but we were all very confident that things were going to go, and I don't know if Nick and I ever actually had to put money into a bank account. We were having to put money into all sorts of bank accounts for lots of lawyers and all sorts of other things at the same time, so I, I, I can't really quite remember. How were the initial rehearsals? How long before the kind of muscle memory started to sort of return? Well, you know, through the years, while watching bands and other things, I make notes on musicians, always have. So I had some extra guys I wanted to get in. We obviously needed a bass player, and I'd worked with Guy, and John Carrion was a brilliant keyboard player who I'd met doing Live Aid, which um, I did with Brian Ferry. And John was in the band, he was very, very good. I thought we needed a percussionist I, th I, I kind of felt that we needed some big figures, some action, because we're on these dots on a stage a long way away. It's a, it's a new moment for Pink Floyd, and I wanted some people who were eye-catching. And, and Gary Wallace was a percussionist who I'd seen on a show with Nick Kershaw, I think he was playing with, but he was so lively and so eye-catching that I thought I would um, get him in. So I put together this band of young guns, you might say, as well as ourselves. Rick and I and Nick, we're all not exactly motionless, but not the most exciting on-stage characters. So I put together these people, and they actually started without me for a week or two, I don't remember quite how long, in Toronto, because I was still finishing something on the album. And then we rented a hangar on Toronto Airfield for production rehearsals, i.e. a whole show. A plane hangar. An aeroplane hangar, yeah. <laughs> Huge, massive. But you've got to get a massive stage in it, and you've got to be able to run your whole show. An aeroplane hangar, I think, was probably a bit cheaper than renting a, a stadium in Toronto or anywhere else to do that sort of thing. And, of course, the security is very good. 
I would imagine so. You, yeah, you have to go through sort of passport control to go to to, to go to your rehearsals every day, because you go on t- onto a live international airfield. Jets going over our head. Yeah, every so often. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't recording anything. It didn't matter. It wasn't like uh, the, the noise mattered. We were making enough noise ourselves. Do you remember the moment when it when it like okay this is this is good now mm. we've got this this sound the songs sound right the playing's up to speed because I can just... remember the moment I thought this is all gone to shit it's awful. <laughs> tell me about that moment first <laughs> which came first we got Bob Ezrin down to help work on it and other people you know because the trouble with being in the band and having to do the singing and the playing is that you can't be out there in the audience at the same time seeing what's going on and trying to see what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and what should be being done better in the show. Obviously some of the time with a radio mic on my guitar and a microphone I could go out front and playing a little bit while they're playing and then stopping them and doing some things but if you're a distance away you're so out of sync because of the time that the sound has taken to come to you, doesn't work. One of the few so, disadvantages of being in Pink Floyd is that you've never seen Pink Floyd live. That's right. <laughs> the only time I've ever seen Pink Floyd live was the encore in Montreal Stadium in 1977, the last gig of the Animals Tour, which is the one that Roger spat on someone at, I think. When I was so pissed off, about something, and I can't even remember what it was, that I refused to play the encore and went out to the mixing desk to watch whatever encore it was with Snowy playing part. So that was the only sort of moment I saw a bit of, a tiny bit of it. Anyway, it was a big scary thing, putting that tour together. I was scared. I feel we should have a quick rundown of the, um, the visual and production ambitions for these shows. What worked and what proved to be an absolute nightmare? Because you had lasers and flying hospital beds and disco balls and all manner of accoutrement. I think on that tour, most of the things that we wanted to do did seem to work. We had a giant mirror ball, we had, as you say, a flying bed. Who builds this stuff? You know, there are teams and teams of people, workshops all over the world of people who are prepared to build anything you want. And uh, you have to have the right person in charge of getting it built, and um, they'll, they'll find a way. What should be a fantastic experience for people who are quite a long way away, you want, it's got to be big and it's got to be visual, because the shows are in stadiums mostly. And a lot of shows. A lot of shows, yes. How many shows? Well, over 200, <laughs> I think, we did. Good um, we, we did America up to Christmas, and then we went to Australia, Japan, Europe, back to America, back to Europe. I think we finished the main part of it in end of 88. So over a year, 
And then I think there was a little bit more in 89. We sort of came back together for the Nebworth show in, I think, 90. When you're doing that many shows, the team you're with, people you're playing with, the musicians, the techs, there's, there's that Stockholm syndrome, the world that you're living in. Also, if you're doing something of this scale, you're not going somewhere and wondering where catering is because you've brought your catering with you. You are creating your world every place you go. That, I don't imagine, is very conducive to sanity. Um, I, you're, 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 you're probably right. Yeah, I guess there was a certain amount of insanity going on during that tour. To recognise that we were doing something right and that it was going very, very well was a, a big source of joy and relief and excitement for me. I'd just be looking at the 15 articulated lorries and just thinking, this is all down to us. Yeah. That would put the fear of God into me. Yeah. Have that resting on my shoulders. Has that never been a worry? Um, <laughs> it's, it is teamwork. Someone in charge of everything, but there's got to be a lot of teams of people doing all those things. There's, you know, the transporting of stages, you know, which are leapfrogging one past each other to the next show after that and basic parts of the show have to be duplicated so that um, you can get in there early in the morning and have a show ready for that night while the next show is moving somewhere else. It's a normal, enormous logistical task and I couldn't begin to tell you how they do it but, you know, if you've got the right people, it'll happen. Yeah, you were one of the first bands to do that, just to explain what you just talked about, have a two entire stage setups, more or less, mm. it being so vast that one's being set up while you're using number two as a yeah. and performing on it, then that leapfrogs over the other one, and this occurs all around the world for yeah. 200 shows. I think at some there were three stages, <laughs> but um, it's, not all the, it's not the guitars and the amps and the onstage thing. All that can go up relatively quickly. So um, it is... The main actual stage and the look of that, you're made out of scaffolding and whatever they make these things out of. But um, they're very, very complex, some of the stages, because um, there's all sorts of trapdoors where lighting rigs come up out of the floor and lights are under shining through glass sheets and, and grills and stuff. It's very complex stuff going on dangerous. under the stage. And dangerous. all of that has to be <laughs> dangerous and complex, yeah. The album that came out of that tour, that was a pretty accurate representation of the set. Yeah. So when you went back to go and do it for this set, there wasn't a lot of fixing. No. It kind of it existed in, yes. a, in a form you were proud of. You know, at the time when we did the original mixes for uh, Delicate Sound of Thunder, I imagine there was a little bit of fixing of bits and pieces here and there. But, but the, the way we do it is... You know, if I'm in the middle of a blinding guitar solo that I really like and I fuck up, which does happen, I can lift a guitar line from another show, another night, and just replace it. So it's something that I did play on a show, but very... And this is pretty rare, I have to say, but if, if you really don't want to lose what might be a magic moment, there are limited ways you can deal with it. And the way I always chose to deal with it was to snip a little moment from another show. I didn't go back in the studio 
and re-record any vocals or any new guitars. There's a little bit of surreptitious fixing goes on here and there. But as, as you say, I think all that was done back then in 89 or whenever it was that we mixed that at Abbey Road. Today, it doesn't need it. Sounds good. It was all, it was all done. Um, at that time, we recorded on a 32-track Mitsubishi um, digital recorder, very early digital recorder. We have found ways of, of using digital to analog converters that of a high, much higher quality than were available at that time. So the basic sound quality of the soundtrack to the, the DVD is considerably better than it was at the time. The vision is immeasurably better because in those days it was filmed on 35mm film but then was transferred down, seems unbelievable today, to video, which is before there was high definition, edited and put together on that and that's the only version that has been out. So this time we've gone back to the 35mm film, had it scanned properly in 4K. The actual quality of the picture, you could put it on a screen as pin, pin sharp, it's beautiful. Together, the package, you could say, of sound and vision for the delicate sound of Thunder Thing is so much better than it ever was. Times have changed, technology changes. The scale of these tours was staggering. Mm. I mean, the highest-grossing tour in rock history at the time. Yeah. Certain amount of pride in that. Followed by another in 94. How does it feel playing places that big, knowing or feeling you can't even probably see the back of the arena auditorium stadium? No, but you, you can certainly you can feel that. There's a huge power there, but it's what I've done for a living since I was 21. You could say I don't know any different. I presume it's a pretty addictive, it's a pretty alluring, it's a, as you say, it's, yeah, it's, it has a physical, I assume it has a physical impact on you every night. I don't think I'm an addictive personality because uh, I can step away from it and spend a year or two and not be remotely concerned by not being out there in front of those vast audiences says you know there's something to be said for it it's exciting that sense of scale but i must say i prefer the slightly smaller scale thing that i've been doing since which is not by any means tiny but uh, is more manageable you can see people's faces it's it's easier to have a feeling of contact with a, an audience that um, is not limitless Sound engineer, Andy Jackson. I'd been asked to do front of house for the momentary lapse tour, but declined. I just was too exhausted from doing the album. And Division Bella was a much more comfortable experience for me, so I was happy to do the tour. You'll never do anything that big in your life, really. I mean, it's just 
That's one thing that's happened with doing this band. You just get to do things on a scale that is just, you couldn't do in normal life and do things for the first time or the biggest or the most or the best or something. Massive sound systems and quadraphonic and, and then you've got, you know, Mark Brickman and the lights and the projections and all of that. And it's just, you, you are aware that you're doing something that's extraordinary. Curiously, for something with so much technology, it's also very human. I remember people frequently asking me, you know, what the technology was, what you were using, what was the automation we were using, what, and it's just like, no, it's us. It's just humans. We're listening to it, reacting to it, we're doing it. You get things like uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, where there's a projection and the music is in sync with the projection. It's like, how does that happen? It's like, because David watches the screen and he knows at this shot, start playing. And if he, by this point, he's behind the film, he speeds up a bit so that it works. You're going to be within a second or two that way. And that makes all the films in sync with the music, but it's because, you know, it's done on a human level. of particular ones which were both I mean in some ways both bits of disaster one which was Houston where we got subject to a full Texas tropical rainstorm and it just destroyed the show even though in theory the stage is covered it's only covered so much and the rain got through and one by one by one everyone you know things broke down until it ended up they were playing as a trio and it was just David and Guy and Nick playing Run Like Hell, and then David's guitar broke. And that was it, end of show. So, yeah, that was an extraordinary. I remember a really stupid thing, that the one person who had avoided getting wet was Dick Parry, the sax player, because he's sort of further back, and he looked completely bone dry. And then when it had all finished, he went to pack up his saxophones, and as he got to the case, a bit of the roof gave way, and a sort of dustbin-shaped column of water came down and completely cartoon style just absolutely walloped him <laughs> just god having a laugh at his expense The other disaster was the uh, the uh, seats collapsing at Earl's Court on the first night of the Earl's Court show, which was, I mean, fortunately, nobody was, you know, I think one person broke an arm or something, and, you know, it was, fortunately it was nothing worse because it was a, a real mess. But I remember we just started the show and it was shine on. And at that point, your attention is like a laser beam on the stage and you're staring through the gloom. That's it, you're into complete focus flow state. And Steve O'Rourke, the manager, whacking me on the back and saying, stop the show. And my brain saying, I have no previous information to how to respond to that. I cannot believe you said stop the show. 
It's just, what did he say? said stop the show it's like well, what's going on what's going on and then somebody one of the other guys saw what was he was right he was behind us and we couldn't see it it's like oh no look 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 it's like ah oh, stop the show pull the faders down it was oh yeah extraordinary this was the tour when you returned to playing dark side of the moon on the division bell tour yeah yes um was there any sort of trepidation about returning to that as a piece you know, we, we were doing the tour, we had a lot of material. We had all the old Pink Floyd material from the Roger days, we, and we had now two new albums to work with, so there's a lot of material, and we were changing the sets around. And we were doing several songs from Dark Side of the Moon. At some point, someone suggested, and it mm, was probably Polly, <laughs> said, you're doing so many of these songs, why don't you just do the whole of it? And I was going, oh, couldn't do that. We need to get all the films together. And uh, But we did. We, we found all the pieces of film or made new ones for one or two. I mean, and this was going on as we were touring. It must have been in the last third or something of the tour that we started occasionally throwing Dark Side in as the second half of the show. And um, that was amazing. It was fantastic. People's reactions yeah. must have been incredible. Yeah, it was. They were. It's um, a very exciting moment. And returning to the footage of that tour as well, you know, the Pulse accompanying film, yeah. a similar thing. It's, it's. Has it been very. Has it been nice to go back and see how good something was when you're confronted with it? Because there's, there's the memory of what something was like, but it's very mm. different to being you know, yeah. confronted with, here's the footage, here's the audio, you've got to go back and listen to this again. It was a fantastic tour, it was a joyous tour. I was, uh, it wasn't the first thing we'd done in our later incarnation. Um, I was in a happy relationship, it was a lot calmer, it was fantastic, it was really enjoyable, and any doubts that we might have had before the start of the Momentary Lapse tour and time were gone. It was all really good and really satisfying. Finally, with the live stuff, I mean, talking about Pulse, it's a very obvious question, but that's never stopped me before. What was the longest life that you uh, heard about, about the flashing light on the spine of the CD uh, the case? Little LEDs? I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I remember having a shelf of them to give to people, which I probably never got around to. One by one, they'd all die, but how long that took, I don't know. I think, I think some of them lasted over a year, maybe a couple of years.
You've been listening to The Lost Art of Conversation, a Pink Floyd podcast. Coming up in episode three, we hone in on the striking visual language of Pink Floyd, the late years, and we pay tribute to the volatile genius who made it happen. There are too numerous to mention people who will tell you he was a tyrant, but there are also people who would say he was a tyrant, but they loved to work for him because he would get the job done. And however many tears had been wept by however many people in, in the process, the result was worth it. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the next episode of The Lost Art of Conversation wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on the new Pink Floyd The Later Years box set, to pre-order, order, or just find out more about what's in this epic release, go to pinkfloyd.com now. <laughs> <laughs>